From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today is the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi, Bruce Reed. Dr. Troy Major, out this week. Today, our point of focus will be the national bird of the U.S., the majestic bald eagle. It's a symbol of freedom and independence, but where can you see this mighty bird in Mississippi? Or how do you know if you have bald eagle nests in your area? Tune in this hour as we discuss those questions and more about this mighty bird of prey. To join the conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today, Bruce Reed, who is the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi. Dr. Troy Major still out this week. He will be back on the show, I think, probably in February. Uh, our focus today is the national bird of the U.S., the majestic bald eagle. It's a symbol of freedom and independence. But where can you see this mighty bird here in Mississippi? Or how do you know if you have a bald eagle nest in your area? Stay tuned this hour. We'll discuss those questions and a lot more about this mighty bird of prey. You can join the conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or send an email animals at mpbonline.org Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it does repeat Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you back, Bruce. We'll uh, talk to you in just a few minutes. But first, uh, uh, Libby, we always like to talk about some things going on, events around the state. And I think you've got a couple to share for us. Yes, I certainly do. Let's see. First off, um, Mississippi Coast Audubon, Janet Wright sent me a lot of great field trips that they're taking. And I guess first note, I'm going to give you the, the short version, but you should go to mscoastaudubon.org to get more details. And they would like to know if you're going to show up. So okay. You should reserve a time. But uh, Saturday, January the 20th, they're going to do a field trip starting at 730 on the Biloxi Beaches. Harrison County, which is always a great, lots of birds to see there. And then on the 27th, they'll be at uh, Seaman Road Lagoons. And then February the 9th, this is a Friday instead of a Saturday, there's a red cockaded woodpecker workshop. Okay. Teach you how to find red cockaded woodpeckers and probably how to identify the um, nesting box or the nesting of holes in trees. Then, let's see, I got a couple on January the 18th. The Family Fun Science Night at the Natural Science Museum is 6 to 8 o'clock. If you want to learn more about science as a family, this is all designed for the parents and the kids, or at least one of the parents or the grandparents, whoever wants to bring kids from 6 to 8 at the Natural Science Museum. There'll be a food truck, so you don't have to worry about getting them fed first. And, uh... 
you can really experience science in fun, hands-on ways, play with robots, meet Mississippi wildlife up close, conduct experiments, develop your own mind with crazy mind teasers or brain teasers. And um, it's primarily for elementary and middle school kids. Okay. Um, oh, and then I got one more. All right. That uh, the Welty House is going to host the um, Fanny Cook portrayal program. So okay. Kathy Shropshire is going to be Fanny Cook there. Uh, Marion Barnwell and I are going to be there talking about the Fanny Cook biography. And there will be books for sale. There will be tours of the house. You can see where Miss Cook lived in that house. And that's going on on January the 18th from 5 to 7.30. All right. Very good. Uh, I drove by the museum the other day, and I saw there was a big – they won some sort of uh, regional tourism award, I think? Yes, I think so, yep. So, they've, yeah, they've it's one of, the, one of the major attractions. They've done the years, yeah, it's, and they uh, got it again. Yeah. Very impressive, it's, and they've got the big, a big sign mm-hmm. out there in front of the museum. So, You know, evidently Mississippians and Jacksonians particularly are really into visiting museums because the Natural Science Museum attendance is, is up from what I can tell – even with the new museums opening. So. And a related note, uh, talking about museums, the two newest museums in Mississippi and in Jackson, the Civil Rights Museum and the History Museum, I believe, have free admission throughout the weekend. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I saw that oh, on uh, Facebook the other day, which is good because uh, I've got some folks coming up Saturday. We were supposed to go to the museum, so that's uh, – a lot of fun. Looking forward to seeing those two new museums here. And that would be a great for getting into Mary Margaret's territory. But if, <laughs> wherever you live as a listener, it, it's fun to come spend the weekend in Jackson and hit all the museums and mm-hmm. maybe even go shopping and eat out. There you go. Uh, we are joined now on the phone by Mitch Robinson from uh, the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. He's their conservation education manager. Mitch, thanks for spending a few minutes with us this morning. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, this Saturday, you'll be hosting a winter bird count. If you could uh, give us some details. Absolutely, yeah. So this will be actually our 11th annual winter bird count. And uh, most folks would say, why in the heck would you get outside, particularly with the weather coming uh, this time of year, to count birds? And uh, it all goes back to uh, around the turn of the century in the year 1900. Uh, Frank Chapman was uh, a budding conservationist, not um much different than uh, Fanny Cook uh, here, uh, our own Mississippi legend in Mississippi. And uh, there used to be a tradition uh, where folks would go out uh, right around the holidays and after having, you know, a a full belly and uh, opening presents would, as most folks do, look to play board games. And at that time it was to have a competition. And they would go out and uh, see how many birds or wildlife in general they could uh, take in what they would call side hunts. And the two groups would split and go and, and shoot as many as they could and then come back and see who uh, had the biggest bounty. And so Mr. Chapman, uh, among many other conservationists at the time, realized that um, there were significant numbers of bird uh, species that were um, being decimated, not just from this activity, but also the millinery trade, uh, particularly with taking birds, uh, breeding birds, um, specifically male birds during their breeding plumage and uh, killing them specifically for their feathers. And so they started seeing large declines of these populations and they said, you know what, what if we just took this uh, energy of competition and channeled it into a competition that wouldn't take the lives of the birds? And so in 1900, uh, on Christmas Day, he started what became known as uh, the Christmas Bird Count. And that's been going on uh, for, I guess, 118 years now. And so 
this is something we participate in at Strawberry Plains. Um, the Audubon Christmas Bird Count is the longest running uh, what we call citizen science or community science program uh, in the world. And that uh, data that has been used from uh, years and years and years of uh, surveys all across not just the United States, but it's spread across hemispheres now and has even uh, led into what is known as a great backyard bird count is a way for citizens to go out, uh, spend a couple of minutes in your backyard, or even go out uh, into ventures uh, like we're going to be doing this weekend uh, with our winter bird count and going out on our 2,600 acres of the property here at Strawberry Plains. And it gives an opportunity for people to see parts of the property that otherwise uh, might not be accessible or, or uh, not, might not have a guide to take you out to some of these really unique spots in some of our wetlands, forests, and grassland meadows to see some birds, uh, particularly during the winter months when um, you would imagine there's not a whole lot out there, but uh, we get things uh, known as eruptions oftentimes during the winter that can be uh, uh, finally attached to the uh, feeding sources of birds, and uh, in particular things like red-breasted nuthatches, which are not common here in the winter, but um, dependent upon what has happened in the previous year with nut crops, particularly with pine seed crops, uh, will end up moving south. And so we might see a huge change between now and Saturday morning in terms of the number of bird species that start showing up in North Mississippi, uh, particularly with the cold front coming through. So this is an annual count that we do each year. Um, and it's a way for everyone from expert birders to those who have never um, made a difference between a cardinal and a titmice uh, be able to come out and not only learn but uh, just participate in a fun activity. Uh, we end up providing lunch and everything for folks that come out, and it's just a really great community um, day for folks to get out and spend a little time in the, in the winter weather but also uh, get experience birding and learning about uh, the importance of doing this type of citizen science. You know, I had not thought about that, but, you know, the, the bonus there, as you mentioned, you know, just getting to explore the Audubon Center there and, and the natural resources that you have is, is sort of an added bonus. So uh, if someone volunteers, is interested, and shows up Saturday, uh, what will happen? How does it work? Give us an idea of what will be going on this weekend. Yeah, so we've actually, uh, last year was the biggest attendance we've ever had. We usually have around 20 folks, which isn't surprising given uh, the time of year and the weather. And last year we had close to 40, and we're looking at almost 40 or 45 for this Saturday, even with the weather. So, um, if anyone is still interested, I would recommend they uh, get in touch with me ASAP. Uh, my email, if you read it, it says Mr. Robinson, but it's mrrobinson at audubon.org, and we'll try to get you registered as well. But um, basically we get folks uh, showing up around 7 o'clock, and we'll have snacks and coffee, lots and lots of coffee, of course, for this Saturday morning. Uh, and then we'll orient folks about the property. We've got about five different areas own our acreage that uh, some of which you can only access by leaving the property driving around to the backside to go to some of our beaver impoundments and some of our wetter areas where we'll get a whole different suite of birds um, of waterfowl and possibly some shorebirds uh, coming in which again you know we'll never know what what's going to be popping in um, with with this cold front coming uh, and so we'll go out and count for about three hours and then each of those five groups will come back warm up with some uh, good uh, chili and a vegetarian side dish, and, uh, and then we'll tally up all of our birds. And that actually um, may seem like the, the, the end of the day, but the real important part is that we put all of this information into eBird, which is a 
database that's managed uh, through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in partnership with the National Audubon Society, and that's what's allowed us to be able to create um, a, a lot of different um, scientific uh, reports on the status of birds, um, or, what, or what they call um, you know these bird population reports that they do every couple of years. And a big one in particular was the 2014 um, climate report on birds, which used over 100 plus years of data, uh, many of it tabulated and um, you know filled notebooks long before digitization uh, into computers, and so. That's something I'll be doing after the event and sharing, uh, you know, what bird species we saw, and hopefully we'll have some some cool cool things that popped in that that were uh, either first of the season uh, birds for Mississippi or just unusual for for this area this time of year. All right, so, so Mitch, uh, give us your email address again, if you would. Yeah, so uh, it is M R R O B I N S O N. So it reads like Mr. Robinson, kind of the counterpart to Mrs. Robinson from the movie The Graduate, <laughs> and uh, that's at audubon.org, which is spelled A U D U B O N dot O R G. All right, very good. Uh, and thanks for joining us. And by the way, you're going to be on our program tomorrow, Next Stop Mississippi. It's on MPB Think Radio Friday mornings at 10. So. Uh, people can get some even more information about this. But, Mitch, thanks for taking a few minutes and letting us know what's going on there this weekend. Absolutely, and stay tuned. We've got a lot of cool stuff this year. This is the 20th anniversary of Audubon, Mississippi, and Strawberry Plains, so we'll be having some celebrations for that. And 2018 is also the year of the bird. Uh, you know, they say Thomas Lovejoy once quoted as if you can take care of birds, you can take care of most of the environmental problems of the world. So this is going to be a project of year-long marketing and outreach between the National Geographic Society and the National Audubon Society, as well as a hundred other organizations for creating ways for people to get connected to birds and understand why birds matter just outside of ecosystem services. All right. Thanks, Mitch, for joining us. We'll be back with more Creature Comforts after this short break. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Harfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Bruce Reed, who is the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi. We'll be talking about bald eagles this morning, so if you have a question and want to join the conversation, just give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can also send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. In fact, uh, we do have an email here uh, that says, I was driving through the Delta Monday and saw a dead deer on the side of the road. There was a red-tailed hawk perched on top of the carcass eating. I didn't know that red tails were carrion eaters. Any comments? Yeah, one of the things we had said, almost all raptors are carrion mm-hmm. eaters. And I guess we even have to throw in crows. Lots of uh, wild animals eat what they can find to eat. Right. You know, which is one of the reasons you have to be careful with rat poison and all kinds of things. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about lead today in the environment, but it affects them. But, yeah, particularly birds of prey, they've got the mouth for tearing apart something. So whether or not they killed a mouse or a car just killed it, of course, they got to be careful because that's sometimes how animals, how wild birds get injured and killed is by eating things off the side of the road or the middle of the road, because they don't really know the difference. 
Yeah, I saw um, a, I like buzzards. I know we've, we've talked about that before. I guess that's kind of the generic term, but uh, several in my neighborhood there mm-hmm. uh, 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 feasting and something and uh, drove by and got a really good look at them. They are they're some very large birds, uh, somewhat intimidating, I would guess, if you uh, if you look at them too close, but it was interesting to see uh, see them, and, and they're very they're intelligent enough because I know a lot of times mm-hmm. they can sense a car coming and they all flutter away, and then when the car drives, you know, they're back to their meal there. So yeah, hawks and owls and vultures have incredibly strong and sharp beaks, and they can they can tear apart a carcass, and that's why if you are rescuing one, you've got to be real careful. Oh, owls, I need to throw in there too, I guess too, but um, got to be really careful of those beaks. Another question from this email says, also was walking the other day, saw a small hawk, probably 10 or 12 inches in height, standing in the midst of a circle of black feathers. Other than the feather, there was no bird remains. The hawk had the feather appearance of a red tail, but without the red tail. A- any ideas, the identity of the bird? Also, I've seen these circle of feathers before with no other remains. What has happened? Do they just don't eat the feathers? Is uh... No, I mean, they're after the the meat and, the yeah. meat and, and, and so forth, but the... There are a lot of different species of birds of prey, uh, smaller birds of prey like a sharpshin or a cooper's hawk or an American kestrel uh, would eat on uh, eat small birds and, and leave a pile of feathers. So uh, a red-tailed hawk is, <clears throat> excuse me, larger and, and more likely is eating uh, a mouse and, and other mm-hmm. mammals. And an immature bird might not have that red tail yet, or it could have been another one of the hawks. He, I don't remember what size you said that it was, Except, but if uh, it's small, you know, inches, yeah. yeah, yeah, there, there's several large hawks. I guess red tails really are our biggest, but um, it, so it could have been a number of different kind of raptors. All right. As I mentioned today, our guest is Bruce Reed, who is the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi. Bruce, uh, give us an idea of what Wildlife Mississippi is and some of the goals of the organization. Wildlife Mississippi is a nonprofit conservation organization, excuse me, a private organization. It's been in existence uh, now for 20 years and works statewide on uh, various on-the-ground conservation initiatives, actually uh, restoration of habitat, uh, working with private landowners. That's a particular focus uh, in, in using various government programs as well as private money to help uh, landowners uh, manage their land, uh, reforest sections of their land. Uh, we also work along a number of major rivers and streams in Mississippi on lands that we uh, own and manage. I believe it's around uh, close to 20,000 acres uh, around the state and through uh, activities such as wetland mitigation uh, Including the Fannie Cook Natural Area here in in Flowood, which was uh, we're still working to open up for public uh, recreation and public enjoyment, uh, along with its wetland management uh, function. All right, uh, we'll visit be visiting with Bruce throughout the hour. So again, if you have a question, uh, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's kick off the hour. Going to Rankin County, Jerry has called in today. Good morning, Jerry. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. First of all, I'd like to thank Bruce and Wildlife Mississippi, which I'm a member. I think they're doing a great job, and I encourage everybody to join and support them. And the other thing is, Libby, I love your book, and my question is, 
when do you think the wildlife refuge will be open to the public? And I'll get off and listen uh, to you Okay. If, right. you, if you drive by, you'll see there's a lot of work going on. But um, And I hate to say because I've given a couple of optimistic uh, predictions that I don't think are going to quite come true. But, you know, it could be as long as another year before we're open with lots of facilities going on out there. But we are steady. um raising money and and working on the site and you know it's 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 functioning as a as a, a a wildlife site right now but we we we're not open yet for public recreation use okay so it's a mitigation bank mm-hmm. uh so bruce uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background uh is some is uh this type of work been something that you've always been interested in the subject matter certainly i was a print journalist, a newspaper man for almost 20 years or roughly 20 years, uh, focusing on wildlife and environmental issues. Uh, I'm originally from from Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, eventually worked for the Baltimore Sun, uh, but also in Virginia and then here in Mississippi. And then I thought, wouldn't it be nice to move into uh, conservation, because I had such a strong interest in began working with the National Audubon Society uh, in about 2000 and uh, stayed there for about 12 years and then now with uh, Wildlife Mississippi but also a number of partner organizations, uh, the Lower Mississippi River Conservation Committee being being one of them. Uh, and I, I really value uh, what Wildlife Mississippi and other groups do and that is making a difference on the ground, uh, restoring and and maintaining and protecting habitat, uh, particularly with private landowners, uh, is very uh, satisfying. Uh, So I'm going to be talking about the bald eagle today. And if I remember from your last visit, you not only uh, study bald eagles, but I think you enjoy uh, taking pictures of them, if I remember. Is that that right? I do uh, enjoy taking pictures of birds. Um, You know, it's it's something that, that is a lot easier these days with the types of equipment you can acquire. Uh, there's some tremendous photography of birds and wildlife <clears throat> that goes on around this state, um, amateurs and, and, and people who really take it seriously. And it's another way of engaging with, with wildlife, uh, sort of another way of hunting in a sense. Uh, but the uh, I've been interested in birds of prey for many years and actually as a teenager started monitoring birds of prey at migration sites in Maryland and Virginia and Pennsylvania, and just uh, <clears throat> birds of prey were, excuse me, for a long time persecuted, uh, shot en masse uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, there were actually bounties on birds of prey. Uh, local governments would pay people to shoot them. So uh, in the earlier part of the, the 1900s, uh, we kind of moved away from that, and there were sanctuaries established and laws established like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to uh, start to really appreciate their role in in, in the ecology, um, but I've just always enjoyed birds of prey. Uh, eagles are, <clears throat> excuse me, a very uh, commanding presence in any environment. Uh, they're big, they're they're impressive to to watch, and certainly they're the national symbol. And it, it it's interesting to know you know how they're doing these days. All right, and so how are uh, bald eagles doing, especially here in Mississippi? I think they're doing, from what we understand, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty well. 
Um, we have, and, and this is the the only estimate that's around because we don't really monitor them intensively anymore, uh, about 100 nesting pairs, <clears throat> probably hundreds of birds in various seasons that are in trans, uh, transit birds, transient birds, uh, moving in the winter and, and moving in the late summer and so forth. Um, in the United States, we have roughly uh, 14,000 pairs, so there's a much larger population in other states. In the lower 48, and, and Alaska has always had a large population, there are about 30,000 pairs, we believe. But that, uh, you know, you put that in perspective, uh, at the uh, late 1700s, and, and that's when the bird was designated the national symbol, there were believed to be about 100,000 pairs in the United States. So uh, the birds were diminished through uh, exposure to things like DDT, down to a few hundred pairs in the lower 48 back in the 60s, and now have come up probably, uh, you know, a fairly stable level and, and hopefully increasing. Okay. Got some calls to get to. Let's uh, start uh, again in Flowood. Mike's called in today. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So we uh, are out in Flowood in an office park with a large lake um, and have always had the benefit of geese and ducks, and those are friendly neighbors. But as of recent, we have gotten probably 100 or more buzzards that have decided to live in the trees or on top of our buildings. Actually, our office building is a metal roof, um, and they have been puncturing the roof of the building. But as of recent, they have attacked several cars in our parking lot, eating windshield wipers and casings as parts of uh, roofs and where windshields meet, uh, dashboard I mean, um, hoods and things like that, and didn't know if there was, I guess, if we have to take humane methods, what would be the best way to uh, go about deterring them from living, living where we are? Okay. Um, and a buzzard roost is, yeah, it's a hard thing to, to make neighbors with. Uh I would recommend that you call uh, what used to be, it's Wildlife Services at Mississippi State University. And I don't have that number with me, but if you Google Wildlife Services, Mississippi State University, Chris um, Godwin leads up that group. And they they have dealt with this many times, and they can help you deal with it. They may even come down and help you deal with it. Great. Uh, Because it, it is very challenging. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, what strong beaks buzzards have and they yeah they they can do some weird things and they're doing that in association with building this this roost or rookery but uh they're not at all intimidated by human presence or human buildings cars and so they're they're probably going to incorporate those windshield wipers in a nest if they, in their mind, that's what they want to do. It's Great. just like we don't exist to them. There's, it's very yeah. strange, yeah. But I'm sorry that they're right there where you are. No, that's, that's yeah. helpful. I appreciate that information. Yes, yeah, so talk to Chris Godwin and see what she can do to help you. All right, uh, Mike, thanks for your call. Let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with Bruce Reed. He's our guest today on Creature Comforts. If you'd like to join in on our conversation, the number is one mpb ring It's one 672 We'll be back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest today, the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi, Bruce Reed. We're talking about bald eagles, but also taking a wide variety of wildlife-related questions as we do each week. Uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can always email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Had a caller that uh, from Flowood was having some issues with uh, with buzzards or vultures, or I'm not sure exactly what the official word is, but I think buzzards is sort of a generic term for those big birds that like to eat uh, carrion and that sort of thing. Uh, Libby mentioned Chris Godwin, and so we've got a phone number. Uh, if Mike is still listening, it's 662 325 3014 to get in touch with Chris Godwin at Mississippi State 662-325-3014. We've got another Mike on the line from Canton. Uh Mike, good morning. Go ahead, please. Hey, how you doing this morning? Good. I'm I'm just saying I don't, I don't think I ever seen a buzzard in, in Mississippi. So that's a it, it is 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 buzzard sort of a general term for maybe? Uh, well, you know that's what they call the vultures. Vultures, that, that, yes. yeah. yeah, right. There are two species of of vultures: turkey vulture and the black vulture. Uh, around the world, they're in in Europe and and the UK and so forth. They're it's another well, I mean, term you know, for hawk. But, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm I'm just saying if you if you're gonna call it a buzzard. And why don't you call a, a red bird a chicken? Okay. All right, Mike. <laughs> yeah, those are just general common names that people use, and often they do use that common name for the vulture. It's All right. a vulture. And I, I'm probably the worst about that. If there's a, if there's a generic yeah. common name, I'll, I'll just go with that. Because, I mean, that's, that's what I think of when yeah. I see them. But. And when they flock like that on a person's land, they do commonly call it a buzzard roost. But you're right. In, in the U.S., it is a vulture roost. All right. Uh, we've got another caller. It's Juanita is on the line from Oxford. Juanita, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Oh, thank you very much. This question is for your uh, guest from Wildlife Mississippi. I would like to just ask, um, as a sort of a person with no axe to grind, uh, in his case, um, what is the reality, as you as you know it, of the um, much reported overpopulation of deer um, here in Oxford? We um, have a tremendous amount of popu- of growth of building, and. Uh, acres and acres and acres of uh, habitat, I know, for the deer and for other smaller, smaller animals, are just being cut down and cut down and cut down. And then people complain that we have an overpopulation of deer. Well, to me, that's a logical thing. They, they have to be pushed. They're pushed into other um, habitats, which end up being people's yards. So I'm wondering, what is the reality of that? Is, is there really an overpopulation of deer? We even have a program in Oxford where People can invite hunters to shoot them with bows and arrows in their yards, which I'm sure causes a problem because then if they get into somebody else's yard injured, you know. Uh, so uh, my question is this. Do we really have an overpopulation of deer or are we just driving them into people's yards? Thanks. I'll just hang up and listen. Right. Probably both. <laughs> but you know, I'm not in any stretch of the imagination knowledgeable on deer populations. 
they're quite common. I mean, I live in Vicksburg in the city limits, and they come up to my backyard all the time. It's they're they're very prevalent everywhere, but they've also been you know very well adapted to to humans and human environments. Um, you know, I can get deer walking down the middle of the street in my neighborhood, or or even wild turkeys. <clears throat> but um, I, I don't really know the, the the population dynamics when you look at at more rural areas or larger tracts of habitat. Thankfully, Mississippi is fairly rural, except in the areas like Oxford or Jackson or or other places where development is is expanding. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Other than uh, you know, there are a lot of deer. Um, and we've kind of set the table for them. Libby may be able to expand. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's kind of what we were talking about with the vultures. There, there's a, a when you get an overlap of wildlife's territory and human territory, and when human territory keeps pushing over there, you're going to have problems, some boundary disputes. <laughs> and uh, deer come and eat my garden, and we keep building a bigger and taller fence all the time. <laughs> but uh, you know what? I've looked at some numbers, and it's you can certainly, I can understand why people say there's a, a, an overpopulation of deer, because we certainly have a lot more deer than we had 100 years ago in, in many places. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to take a community working together, I think, with the wildlife department to come up with the best solution for what you, how you're going to deal with your deer in the Oxford area. I can understand that people don't want them eating their rose bushes, but uh, I can also understand people wanting to see deer in their mm-hmm. yards. I, I have mixed feelings myself when I, when I see them in my yard. If they're eating... Something that I didn't plant and want to cultivate, I'm okay with them being there. And then the next day, I can be really mad at them. So I guess I'm seeing both sides of that problem too. But to ask if there's an overpopulation, overpopulation is depends on how humans want to define that. Yeah. So I'm sure, from a lot of people's standpoint, it, there is an overpopulation. And I will say that we have done a very thorough job of decimating white-tailed deer's predators. Hmm. There are, you know, we don't have wolves and cougar, and we really keep the coug- the uh, coyote population down a good bit. So there are not very many things that are going to prey on a deer. So, And there's lots of habitat for deer because, like Bruce said, they can adapt to your yard just fine and be very happy there. Mm-hmm. All right, Juanita, thanks for your call. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in with a question, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 On Creature Comforts this morning, we're visiting with Bruce Reed, who's the Outreach Specialist for Wildlife Mississippi, talking about bald eagles. Now, Bruce, you mentioned that uh, you know the bald eagle population had recovered in the DDT and other uh, harmful chemicals that were banned in the 1970s. But as we were chatting uh, before we came on the air, there certainly are some challenges that eagles face today, uh, including one about lead. If you could tell us uh, the, the problem that is there. Specifically on, on lead, and it, I guess I go back to my journalism days and, and encounter a topic like that and kind of dive into it and learn about it. Uh, I don't know that there's a, a lot of awareness here in, in Mississippi, uh, but in, in other states, 
particularly those with larger eagle populations of uh, Virginia comes to mind, uh, even Iowa and places like that. They've, they've actually done a lot of work. There's been a lot of scientific study. And uh, eagles are one of the birds, uh, eagles do scavenge for food, uh, that is encountering uh, fragments of lead, actually ingesting them, in uh, animals that have been uh, killed by hunters, uh, maybe not found, or in gut piles uh, after a deer's been dressed in the field. To the point where uh, in Virginia, I was, I was looking at the Wildlife Center of Virginia, which is a large rehabilitation center there. They took in a record number of eagles this year that were injured uh, and, and we're treating, uh, I think it was over 50 eagles, and that had been a large increase, but uh, they said, well, that speaks to a good population. There are just more of them out there. But 70% of those birds had varying levels of lead intoxication, and it can take just a couple of small, tiny fragments of lead uh, that are ingested uh, for uh, an eagle to be killed. Um, it it's a very interesting issue because we banned the use of lead ammunition in waterfowl hunting in 1991. Uh, it can be quite controversial, but it just struck me that uh, it's a persistent problem for, for a lot of uh, birds and wildlife. Uh, eagles just happen to be something that uh, you know people have a lot of regard for. And uh, there are efforts and initiatives around to uh, educate people and even get them to switch to non-lead ammunition. I'm not an expert in, in ammunition in any way, so uh, it's just an issue that people, uh, I think, would be interesting to to learn about. Um, there are lots of things that are continuing to affect birds like bald eagles and many species of wildlife. Certainly eagles are um, habitat destruction or nest disturbance. Uh, in areas like around the reservoir in, in Jackson, it's pretty difficult for birds uh, like eagles to find the kind of peace and quiet they need. Uh, in, in We were just talking about deer being adaptable. Well, eagles aren't so adaptable to a, a very uh, disturbed human environment. But I think you make a good point because I think uh, before you can really kind of <clears throat> solve any problem, there needs to be an awareness of. And so it sounds like uh, people are becoming more aware of that problem. And, and hopefully uh, maybe as we as we become more aware of it, they can work to have some solutions uh, to not uh, endanger uh, these, these great birds of prey. Um, so are bald eagles found in all parts of Mississippi or, or more prevalent in, in, in certain areas of the state? They are found throughout the state. I think you will find them nesting or even uh, existing in larger numbers around uh, large rivers like the Mississippi, the Pearl, Pascagoula, along the coast, uh, and then larger bodies of water because about half of their food is, is fish, live fish, um, and they certainly like to take to water. Uh, they will uh, be around the state at different times, but you can see a lot of them around an area that has real good habitat. Uh, when Libby and I sometimes go out on the Mississippi River, it's not uncommon every time you go out there to see one or more bald eagles uh, because it's a fairly remote piece of environment. Uh, on the coast, they're, they're already nesting, and I think they're already nesting in central Mississippi or, or starting to. Uh, I talked to someone yesterday, and he had seen a pair uh, around a nest 
Uh, so they, they kind of nest early. <clears throat> and um, about now and in, in, in the next couple of months. But, uh, you know, they, they're fairly commonly seen, but we don't have the population of some other states where there would be really hundreds and hundreds of these birds. And I will mention, if you, uh, if you notice a, an eagle nest, a pair of eagles, and think they're nesting, if you want to give the Natural Science Museum a call, they would appreciate it because they do keep an unofficial list of, of nest sites. What, uh, <clears throat> what size is the nest? If I remember correctly, they're, they're quite large. Yeah, they can be probably hundreds of pounds and as big as, you know, a, a Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so if they're used year after year, uh, they're, they're added to, then, uh, you know, eventually they could even break the limbs that they're sitting on. But uh, large, a large nest, very visible even from a distance. We need to take uh, one final break this hour. When we get back, we will continue visiting with our guest today, the Outreach Specialist for Wildlife Mississippi. It's Bruce Reed. We're looking for your call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 We'll be back with more after this. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today, the outreach specialist for Wildlife Mississippi, Bruce Reed. We've been talking about uh, primarily about bald eagles, but have talked about some other wildlife-related uh, things today as well. Still a little bit of time if you'd like to work in a call before the end of the hour at one eight seven seven. MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Back to the phones we go. Kathleen is on the line from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning, guys. I got two little quick things. Um, yesterday, I was gathering. I gather nuts and greens and stuff like that for my little rabbit that I know she can eat. To besides her regular pellets to kind of improve her life. Well, I was standing on one side of a log, very large log, and I was bending over, picking up these, uh, cutting these seeds, and I heard something, so I stood up, and on the other side of the log, there was an eight-point buck. Mm. He looked at me, I looked at him, I don't know who was more scared. I didn't move <laughs> to antagonize him, but he snorted real loud, stopped his foot, and ran. Uh-uh. But uh, the area, I wanted to speak to the gentleman that's there today, uh, but just south of Magnolia, Mississippi. On Highway 51, they've got several large ponds. And last year I phoned it in because I almost couldn't believe my eyes. If you were heading north on the left side, west side, uh, they had like two dead trees right at the edge of the water. And I thought I saw an eagle, how they say I thought I saw a pretty cat. <laughs> these were a whole tree full of these, and they were going for the pond and the roadkill on the road. So they had lunch, dinner, and dessert right there. But uh, every other tree had buzzards this spring. I'm talking 10, 15 in a pod here and in a pod there. I had never seen so many. I said, well, I don't know if it was the heat or the rain, but something. They were all over the place there. Any thoughts? I mean, that's... When you see a large number of large mainly black birds uh they're probably turkey vultures or black vultures to encounter a large 
congregation of eagles is in Mississippi is fairly uncommon. I've actually seen them at, at certain places like catfish pond complexes, but not generally sitting around, you know, dozens at a time. That's that's going to be vultures. Uh, Kathleen, you know, what, where did to me. Yeah, where did you say the, the birds were? Just south of Magnolia, Mississippi. And it was on the western side of the road. They have several ponds there. And they were lined up in this one tree. You could definitely see the white hoods. Okay, so now, some of them were were really eagles is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah They yeah. were definitely oh, eagles. The, the buzzard pods were up and down the whole road, not necessarily connected to the uh, eagle tree, you know. But they were loaded up in there and right. all had the white hoods. And I was amazingly surprised. And I even checked to make sure I had my glasses on. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so was, that's a... Were these catfish ponds? Uh, they used to be. So apparently they still have something in there for them of interest. Yeah, right. that that's probably an explanation for why a lot of birds, including eagles, might have been congregating there because they were dead and dying fish or, or something that was readily available to them. And Kathleen, if you can check back in that area every now and then, and you might find some eagle nests or at least one eagle nest, and let us know if you find one. All right. Kathleen, thanks for the call. Always good to hear from you on Creature Comforts. Uh, so, Bruce, you mentioned uh, that uh, a, a good part of the bald eagle diet is fish. Um, I I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I picture them, you know, soaring above and then dive bombing down and snatching a fish out of the out of the uh, the river. Is that is that the way they hunt? They do hunt uh, from the air and and soaring, and uh, I mean that's a typical strategy um, for hunting live fish when live fish are readily available. Certain environments where waterways are frozen or whatever, then they're going to move to some other prey. Um, you know, they can take uh, waterfowl, and primarily that's injured waterfowl. <clears throat> In a wetland area, they can uh, take a mammal. Uh, carry-on is, is quite commonly eaten, uh, things dead on the side of the road or in the woods. And I think among young birds, that's that's fairly common because they're not experienced hunters. So they have a re- very opportunistic diet and a, and a, and a varied diet. Okay. Uh, we got another call to get to. It's uh, Lewis who's called in from Covington, Louisiana. Good morning. You're on the air, so go ahead, please. Uh, good morning. Um, I have had some experience with bald eagles over the years, just uh, mainly just observing. And... Um, I have worked on ships on the Mississippi River, on the lower Mississippi below Baton Rouge, and this is definitely the best month of the year. I think uh, when I wasn't busy on ships, I'd, on my binoculars, I'd usually see one or two bald eagles every hour, just at almost any place on the Mississippi. And for anyone who's near that big body of water, a big dam or a big the Mississippi River, uh, if you have a good spotting place and you can just sit for an hour, uh, you'll probably see at least one. And... Uh, on another example, I used to, I used to live on the Lower Platte River for about five years, and on the upper end, I once witnessed about fifty at one time. I've, actually, it was right at dusk, and I thought, I thought it was a flock of Canada geese on a sandbar. And then I, it was starting to get dark. Then I looked closer, and I saw that they were flying up to another island into cottonwood trees. And I just was, I was utterly amazed. I had only heard about that kind of thing in Alaska, but. I have heard of other people say they've seen 25 and 30 in, in fields in the upper Mississippi. 
Um, <laughs> and one other thing, I used to walk my little dog, and uh, often a couple of eagles would pursue me. So if you have little uh, dogs um, or any animal or child under 30 pounds, they'll, they'll, they'll go for them. And uh, in Alaska, they have a lot of trouble with eagles coming down. So you have to realize that they can be hazardous to them. They can even be aggressive, you know. All right. Hey, Lois, uh, thanks for the call. So, Bruce, would this be a time of year when there is some, some bald eagle activity? I think the, the birds are in, in this state are starting to build their rebuild their nest, build their nest. Uh, they'll be laying eggs soon. So around a nest, yes, you'd have activity. Actually, in the fall, uh, in places like the Delta, I was talking about catfish ponds, I've seen as many as 60 or 80 eagles in one location. And you can get large concentrations. There can be a couple of hundred birds in certain locations uh, around where I grew up in uh, Susquehanna River, Conowingo Dam, a big dam where there's a lot of food. And, and in those areas, people go out and photograph them and, and enjoy them. So they can be very gregarious, uh, but usually people are seeing one or two at a time. Yeah, and I don't know if we've mentioned it the first maybe we didn't emphasize the fact but we've got a pretty good population here in mississippi and then northern birds are coming down here for the winter so that's why you you, you have a better chance like late fall after you've had a few cold snaps and this time of year so we are seeing more birds because we do have more eagles right now okay that's going to wrap us up for today creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating 20 years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife, and from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield and our guest Bruce Reed, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned up next at 10, it's MPB's Season Pass, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.